Good morning, friends. Good morning. good morning. Wow, that was a better good morning than the nine o'clock. You guys, I'm not going to lie. We're coming off of, for anybody here who has children between the ages of, what, like five and 18, right? DeKalb County, you're coming off a week-long break. You've probably been one of the two opposite things in the world, skiing or in Florida, right? Um, maybe skiing in Florida, water skiing. Interesting. Anyway, this is where we're at this morning. I'm going to let you know we're going to be a little interactive, okay? So lean into this space. This might be uncomfortable. We'll get through it together. We'll be okay. My name is Catherine. I work with our students here. I'm a minister to students and families, um, and I am always excited to be here, but particularly excited to be joining with you guys um, this morning to talk a little bit about Mark 3. And before we jump in, um, on a personal note, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to this uh, community, your texts and emails, um, the prayers, the meals. Um, we, my husband and I have felt incredibly loved over these last several weeks as we walk through the grieving and the death of my mother-in-law. Um, so just thank you from the bottom of our hearts. The way that you have loved on our family and continue to love on us uh, does not go unnoticed. You guys know our love languages, words of affirmation, and meals. So we love you guys and we are so glad to be part of All Souls. Um, so today, I'm going to be wrapping up this kind of first chunk of our Mark series, uh, the, the decades-long series. Um, okay. Always got a temperature check, always got a gauge. Uh, we'll be looking at the middle of chapter three. Uh, and then next week, we're actually going to transition. We're going to take some time during the Lent season uh, to look at the practices of prayer. So I want to encourage you guys to be uh, joining and following along with us online or right here in person. Um, we're going to have a Lent study guide that's going to be coming out to you guys. This is an excellent opportunity for families, uh, personal study reflection. We'd love it for our community groups to be going through it. Um, I'm excited to see what God is going to do, uh, the fruit that is going to come from this community as we dig deeply into the study and practice of prayer. I don't choose that word without thinking about it. Uh, we say that prayer is a practice, and that's not a mistake. Uh, if you're new around here, you've already heard at least once, but um, the vision for us here at All Souls is that we practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And I really like this idea of practice because it gives us some freedom, right? Especially if you grew up in maybe a legalistic or a perfectionist kind of church or faith environment. Um, practice seems kind of more my speed, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I know you have to actually do things to practice, contrary to what my sixth grade piano teacher might tell you. Um, but there's something about that that feels accessible. Like, I, I can get it. And that's the way that I feel Mark introduces us to Jesus in this gospel. So in the world today, the art of learning a craft by way of apprenticeship is not something that is super popular and not valued anywhere near as much as it used to be, right? Um, when we think about people like learning something, we think about like sitting in a classroom, like hearing a person talk at them, right? Like watching a video maybe or, you know, reading a book, right? Book learning. Um, rarely, if ever, do we see any more people kind of getting down and getting their hands dirty to practice a craft. 
Yet we have thousands of years of history that teaches us that the art of learning a, a craft or a skill or something by this idea of like apprenticeship, standing right next to the teacher and getting your hands dirty on how to think and act and do is actually really, really successful. Uh, there was a biographer that I read once uh, who called, it was in reference to uh, Stradivari, the Italian guy who made the violins, right? The Stradivarius violins. Um, he called this practice of apprenticeship elbow learning because you're standing elbow to elbow, getting your hands dirty. And I love that. The Gospel of Mark, this is elbow learning about Jesus, right? We get to sit, stand, and walk with Jesus. We get to hear him engage in his world. We hear him speak of the kingdom. We see him demonstrate it. And we, at his elbows, have opportunities to become apprentices to the master. We're invited to watch, to hear, and to practice elbow to elbow with our Savior. So I'm going to invite Leslie up to read the passage today. You can follow along in the worship guide on the uh, link in the upper right-hand corner of your screen if you're joining us online, or if you brought your Bible. We're in Mark chapter 3, reading verses 7 through 19. Disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we pray this morning as we dig into your word here that you would reveal your will to us. Reveal to us what you are calling and naming each one of us for so that we can take the steps to do the work on mission here as you call us. In your name and for your glory. Amen. So last week, uh, we left kind of in the middle of uh, chapter 3 with Jesus healing on the Sabbath and the Pharisees uh, desperately missing the point. Uh, missed the point so much, actually, that they leave the synagogue after Jesus has healed a man with a shriveled hand and they join forces with their sworn enemies, the Herodians, about how to bring Jesus down, how to plot for his death. And this specific healing uh, that we read about kind of 
in the Sabbath with that particular hand. That wasn't like the thing, the straw that broke the camel's back, but, but rather that was kind of like the collection of all the things where these group of people said, we need to do something about this. And that leads to the domino effect of what we know is now the Passion Week, right? Um, and so in this passage today, it's following right after that. And we're going to look at two distinct groups of people, and we're going to ask two questions. Question number one, why are they here? Question number two, what does it all mean? Now, these are not trick questions, nor are they rhetorical questions. Uh, there is not a quiz at the end of today, but... I do want you to be able to follow along, um, and we're going to end today with a little bit of a challenge and a reflection. Y'all, I've been in Alabama for like multiple weeks, and I'm feeling a little Southern Baptist in me. Um, we're going to get through it. Don't worry. Um, but I want you guys to be able to follow along and ask and answer these questions. So first, let's take a look at the first chunk here that Leslie read. Um, this passage is kind of divided into two sections, kind of naturally, so we're going to follow that. So this first chunk, verses 7 through 12, um, you can look, read with me here. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. All right, first question. This is the first group of people with whom Jesus interacts. They are... Okay, let's read this again. Jesus withdrew from his with his disciples to be at the lake, and a large crowd <clears throat> from Galilee followed. So this first group of people that Jesus is interacting with is a large crowd. The, I told you guys, these are not trick questions, I promise. These are like very like a large crowd. So let's paint this picture, right? Let's do this. Let's, let's do this setting. So what we see here really kind of starts like in the middle of chapter one of Mark is we see that Jesus is going around teaching. He's performing miracles. He's gaining notoriety. He's alienating a lot of the ruling class, um, but the crowds are growing. And at this point, they've kind of reached the zenith, right? This is the height. Um, and this is really fascinating uh, because at the point, this point that we see here in the story, people are coming to see, hear, and judge Jesus with the curiosity. They're asking questions like, who is this guy? And is he on my side? Or is he on the, guy, the other guy's side? Um, and these questions matter a lot in this text, and they matter a lot for us as the reader. Because the crowd who's watching him, they're coming to him for he, what he's doing. Remember that. So the passage here says, the crowd followed him. They're coming. Like, and we say, they're coming. Like, they're coming. Um, and then we see a long list of places that people are coming from. If you are anything like me and not a biblical maps expert, um, you may be wondering what the point of this is. Well, whenever there's anything that's written in scripture, especially lists like this, this is important. So let's dig in. Let's look at a little geography here. So Jesus is teaching at Capernaum, which is at the very top of the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, right? It's at the northern point there. And people are coming from all around. Judea and Jerusalem. That's about 100 miles south from where the Sea of Galilee is. Um, Idumea here, um, it's kind of a, a region, not necessarily like a, a town or a place, but it's a, a region in the south of Judea, kind of southwest in modern-day Egypt, kind of by where the Gaza Strip is. 
Um, and that's about 150 miles away from the sea. Tyre and Sidon are cities um, north along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and they're about 50 miles north from the Sea of Galilee. And that might not seem like a long distance for us today, right? So like what's 50 miles north of Decatur? Like Gainesville-ish, right? Gainesville? Gainesville. Um, you might go to Gainesville if there was a speaker that you really, 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 really wanted to hear really wanted to hear, and they weren't coming to the Fox, you might say, you know what, family, let's do it. Let's get in the car. We're going to drive. We're going to hear this guy, right? Um, I am very confident in saying, do you know what you would not do? Walk to Gainesville, Georgia. Preach, right? You would not, right? But that's, that, is, that is this day and age. This isn't just like, all right, Jerusalem family, let's get in the car. This is like, days, weeks, like, here's your camel, like, this is an investment. Um, That's only the 50 miles north. You know it's about 120 miles south and west of Decatur, Georgia? Auburn, Alabama. I think those people went to there. Um, (laughs) Home of the Tigers, right? And, um, for those of you cheering in the back, let me tell you what, um, no matter how big of a fan you are, you're not walking to Auburn. <laughs> Amen, right? You're not going to walk 120 miles even to see them play the dogs in the Iron Bowl, right? You're not doing it. So people are coming from like 50, 100, 120, 150 miles away to hear Jesus. Like This is pretty incredible that they're taking the time to do this. And honestly, the on-foot geography is not even the most interesting part of this, right? These regions represent a ton of ethnic diversity in a time of deep ethnic division, right? The Jews, the ones who are actually waiting for a Messiah, the guys who like it might make sense for them to come follow, they're coming. And so are the other guys. Jesus is attracting everybody. So this first group that Jesus is interacting with is the crowd. What's the first question? Why? Why are they here? Now, up until this point in the gospel, Jesus has been doing things revealing kind of this main overarching theme of the gospel of Mark, and that is that Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit, calling for repentance and bringing the kingdom of God near. He is the meaning of the Sabbath and the rain and the peace on the earth that the people have been hoping for comes in him. And that's all good, but that's not what brings the crowds. People are coming not for who he is, but for what he can do for them and for what they can get from him. The crowds are not coming to hear the message and the good news. They're attracted by Jesus's power. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. This shows us here that the disciples were prepped in case he needed to have a getaway plan, right? He had a boat on the water so that people could get on if they were going to crowd him. I don't think the new international version in our worship guide really does this Greek word justice. The people were crowding him. This word translates as the mechanism that you were to press grapes into wine. It's a little different than crowding. There were so many self-interested seekers of Jesus that they might actually physically crush him. 
They knew that they needed to get into close physical proximity to Christ because all you needed to be healed with was a touch, right? We, we've heard this. We've seen this. But they were so consumed with their own desire for healing that they didn't stop to consider who he was, but instead simply were focused on what he could do. I read this and, and these images in my mind came of um, like in the heyday of like the 80s and the 90s. And that's the generation that I'm from. I'm sure it was better in the 60s and the 70s. But these things um, called concerts. In the before times, lots of people used to gather and they used to hear people singing. Um, those were called concerts. And I think of these pictures that I've seen of like women rushing the stage when Elvis Presley came out, right? Or like the Beatles. Um, or like the hundreds of thousands of like bazillions of people who would swarm parking lots to see Michael Jackson stand outside of a hotel. Um, people who are rushing forward to consume. Emotions ravaging these people because they just want to catch a glimpse. They just want to get a touch. I can't even imagine, can't even imagine what that would be like if people did that for the savior of the world. Second portion of this passage, the chunk verses 13 through 19. This is our second group of people. The second group of people with whom Jesus interacts with is, ooh, we're getting better, good job, the apostles, right? The apostles, so our question, why are they here? Well, for this second group, Jesus heads up to the mountain. It's not just a means of escaping the crowds, but it holds much, much deeper significance. Like when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai where God makes Israel his chosen people. By Jesus going on a mountain, he's making the distinction between the crowd who is simply interested in what they can get from him and the people who are actually his. So look with me here at the very beginning of verse 14. He appointed 12. Stop. The 12 here is important. Jesus doesn't call eight. He didn't call 10. He doesn't call 14. He calls 12. And this is a direct link back to the Old Testament. People would have known that 12 would have held significance to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it comes to full completion, we see in Revelation 21, where John describes a new Jerusalem. There are 12 gates, there are 12 foundations, right? This 12 is a symbolic reconstitution for the people of God to become his new church. And this reminds us that, that, that the Bible, this, this book, this is one story. It's about one person, the person of Jesus, calling one people, his people, to know and proclaim the one true living God. The continuity of the New Testament church with the Old Testament people of God is not something that has been invented by theologians or scholars or pastors. It is from the very scriptures itself. And this calling here like that Jesus does, it, it's easy to imagine kind of like a roll call, right? Like Jesus is like, who are the students in my class this year? Right, here's the roll call. Like, who am I picking on my dodgeball team? They're all lined up. Um, but no, the phrase here that Mark uses, this appointment, is much more on purpose. It's much more creative. He calls them by name. So let's talk about naming for a minute, right? Romeo and Juliet. What is in the name? A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet or something. Um, 
names have a high impact in the ancient world, right? Um, and they, 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 they bring the sense of like belonging, right? And even in more recent history, right, the surnames, um, they've kind of evolved to like delineate people into groups, right? Occupation, place of origin, clan affiliation, patronage, hair color, whatever, right? Um, naming is still important even today. If you're a parent or you've ever had the privilege of naming a child, um, especially if you've been a teacher, the list of things you can't name your kid is long. Um, if you have a child and you've ever had a child name an animal, stuffed or otherwise, uh, I, I mean, I, I, can't, I feel like I can't even ask, like raise hands, how many people have had something living or not in their house named Snowball at some point? Like every parent's like, yes, actively right there, the goods. I didn't even think about that until it just came out. That was not an example I used in the first service, but it works, right? I had like eight things named Snowball as a child. Naming is important. Um, and it has power and it forms perceptions. I'm gonna give you a real life example. Um, in 1934, this was the sixth most popular boy's name in the United States. You wanna know what that name was? Donald. Guess where that was in 2020? 612. Nobody's naming their kid Donald anymore, right? Names are important. And Jesus names these 12 apostles, not by simply like calling out their names like a list, but he's calling these 12 guys to something. Now, this something in this particular regard is basically like live life and go camping with me for three years. They don't know that yet, but that's what they're calling it to. But he calls them on purpose and for a purpose. So let's look at these names. Simon, who Jesus renames Peter. Rock, rock, Peter, rock, Peter, rock, rock. When I was like four, lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, and there was a vacation Bible school song. Jesus said, so you are Simon, son of John. When I look at you, I don't see Simon, but instead I see a rock there, my man. Simon, Peter, guess I'll have to call you rock. Y'all, VBS is important. <laughs> I am 34 years old, all the words and the hand motions. It's coming. VBS is important, right? Um, but we sing. Jesus calls Simon Peter the rock. James and John become sons of thunder. Don't know what that means, but it's awesome, <laughs> right? And Judas, he calls him the betrayer. He already knows. These names identify who they are, their purposes, though they are not yet fulfilled in real time. When Simon was called Peter, the rock, he was a flake. <laughs> he was not strong. But with walking alongside Jesus and doing the elbow work of the apprenticeship of living with him, he grows into what Jesus has spoken. And Jesus, he appoints these 12 as apostles not just as disciples. I think we often use these words interchangeably, but they're a little bit different and that difference is important. A, a disciple is a follower who learns and grows from a teacher. An apostle is one who has the authority to speak on behalf of another. There are specific words, a purpose and a goal to which all of these apostles are called. So let's keep going, verse 14. 
Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him that they, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So our question of why are they here, that's pretty, pretty clearly answered, right? They are here for three reasons, to be with him, to preach, and to demonstrate the works of the king. First, he calls them to be with him. What does it mean to be with Jesus? It's the foundation of salvation from our sins, to be forgiven so that we can be with God. The ultimate goal of salvation is that being in communion one-on-one, back to the way things were intended to be. This draws a very stark difference between the crowds who are following Jesus at the Sea of Galilee and this group of the apostles that Jesus calls. The apostles are not there to see what Jesus can do for them. To use him to be healed and then walk away saying, okay, thanks, bye, and not have any part of their life changed. No, these apostles were called to walk and to eat and to drink and to be with and to know the God who rules the universe by the power of his word. Second, he sends them to preach. And that doesn't just mean like finding a stage and standing and talking. It means to proclaim and herald the good news of the gospel, that God calls us to be set apart and to make him known by declaring who he is and what he has done. And this declaration, y'all, this is the good news to declare and to preach in our city and our neighborhoods and our, our coffee shops and our offices and to tell with authority about this Jesus and what he has done. I have spent the better part of 13 years in some sort of church, parachurch ministry environment. And I can tell you if there is anything that I have learned about these experiences is that we are way too timid about declaring the name of Jesus in, through, above, and over things. And third, Jesus sends them to have authority to cast out demons. Now, for Mark, this is more than just exorcisms, right? In the time of the text, yes. Physical demons, manifestations, possessed folks, yes. Today, um, the point of this kind of overarching authority uh, that Jesus is giving to these apostles now is showing that evil, corruption, and the effects of sin have crept in everywhere, right? To drive out evil means that these apostles have been commissioned by God through the authority given to them in Jesus to declare the gospel and to work hard with their hands and with their lives to cast out and overcome evil in the world and around them in the name of Jesus. Y'all, not much about that call has changed. So I told you we'd be talking about two groups, right? The crowd and the apostles. We would ask two questions. Why are they here? I think we've answered that. Um, what does it all mean? So what does it all mean? I'm not sure we can answer that question unless we are deeply honest with ourselves about why we're here. I'm not talking about like why we're here on the planet. <laughs> talking about why you're, you're here in this building, watching this service today. Are you a member of the crowd? Are you sitting here in this room coming to Jesus to get something? Maybe you're here because you're searching for identity. You want to be associated with the right kind of people, and these people seem like those folks. Maybe... 
you're looking for healing or forgiveness. Maybe you're looking for friendship. You need some people in your life who like you. Maybe you're looking to strengthen your family or relationship. Maybe you're looking for comfort or peace, or maybe you're here because it's Sunday and this is what we're supposed to do on Sundays. You come and you seek out what Jesus can give you to answer your needs, to fulfill your quota, and to offer the convenience of what you're looking for to justify your words, your actions, and your lifestyle. Or are you a member of the second group? The ones called by Jesus to walk alongside. The group that separates Jesus from the crowd. Those who are saved and called and redeemed. Those people who cannot get enough of Jesus himself. Jesus the teacher. Jesus the healer. Jesus the person. Jesus the king. Now don't get me wrong. Your search for identity is good. But the identity of those whom Jesus called is found and standing beside elbow to elbow with Christ. Your longing for forgiveness is good, but getting forgiveness really just kind of brings us back to neutral, doesn't it? We want to get to Jesus by following the way. Your desires for comfort and peace and healing are good, but y'all, they are never promised to be answered by God on this side of heaven. But the movement of people who belong to Jesus, that is a redemption story. Where in the end, the whole earth is filled with the glory and the peace and the holiness and the blessings of God. And gone is all evil and injustice, death, weeping, crying, and pain. The difference between those who just want to get the good from Jesus and those who actually want to follow Jesus is this sense of calling to declare his words and live your life on mission regardless of your surroundings or outcomes. When you consider the question of why you care about Jesus, why you're in this very room, your answer means everything. Do you come to Jesus with your own agenda? Maybe you're not selling your savior for 30 pieces of silver, but my friends, if something goes wrong in your life, is Jesus still enough? If the brokenness of life brings cancer to your doorstep, is Jesus still enough? If the evils of the world reign injustice and anger to your family and your neighborhood, is Jesus still enough? If the reality of unmet expectations in your marriage speaks loudly in your life is jesus still enough if the very scriptures the word of god itself calls out your lifestyle your thoughts your actions or your inactions do you feel betrayed by jesus or is he enough the call that jesus has for us is like the call that he has to the apostles a call to repent and to follow him, to come and know him, not just use him, to be with him, to discover who we are in him, and to preach and serve the world that he's created until he comes again. The free gift of salvation is about God calling you to himself, not to anything else, no matter how good those things may be. 
God is in the process of creating new people, a new Jerusalem. He calls people to be together, to do life together, to separate from the crowd of people who are seeking only to consume. And Jesus is calling you to follow him for intimate fellowship, relationship, knowledge, trust, grace, so that we can learn and stand elbow to elbow and practice the way together. I challenge you, do not leave this place today without seriously asking yourself that question. Why are you here and who is Jesus to you? Are you willing to lay down the things of this world and repent of every other thing that you call ultimate? I pray that we can join together to be a people about Christ, that we proclaim his word above, beyond, and over our good ideas, that we can do the works in the world under his authority, overcoming evil and injustice and bringing the good news of Christ to the poor and to the marginalized, to the downtrodden, to the sick and to the needy. And that we would answer that question when Jesus calls us that, yes, Jesus, you are enough. Holy Spirit, come. Amen.